Welcome to the premiere podcast of the Black Dahlia and the Blue Dahlia. This is your host, Scott Tracy. The Black Dahlia is the most famous unsolved murder in Los Angeles history. I'll be telling the story as it was covered on a daily basis in Los Angeles newspapers. The Blue Dahlia is included in the title because that's the film noir movie that's the basis of the name given to Elizabeth Short in the newspapers after her demise, and it speaks to the culture of the 40s, film noir does. The Black Dahlia mystery has been an active topic, and I find that fascinating. How does Jane Doe No. 1 of 1947 become dinner conversation in 2020? Why is the Black Dahlia the patron saint of death for the city of Los Angeles? That's a good question. But before we begin, it's necessary to dispel five myths. Number one, Beth Short was a working actress. Number two, Robert Manley was the last man to see her alive. Number three, she was last seen at the Biltmore Hotel. Number four, the press invented the name the Black Dahlia. And number five, Norton Avenue is a lover's lane. Myth number one. Elizabeth Short was not an actress. She was a girl of 22, and as many young girls might, she daydreamed about being a famous star. To be a successful actress, one trains. Acting is a commitment. Acting is a career. Beth would need a union card to be in the movies, even if she was just an extra. She had no union card. She needs an agent. Why would any agent take her on? Let's put this in numbers. Elizabeth Short lived in Hollywood for just over 100 days. That's it. She checks into the Brevoort Hotel in Hollywood on Wednesday, August 20th, 1947, and then stays in a variety of places. The Hawthorne Hotel, the Figueroa Hotel, Mark Hansen's house, Guardian Arms Apartments, and the Chancellor Apartments, then leaves for San Diego on Monday, December 9th. 1947. This mystery is not a Hollywood story, but early statements of Phoebe Short that are printed in the newspapers create that opportunity for the press to craft a desirable and relatable image for the public. Quoting Phoebe, Elizabeth always wanted to be an actress. She was ambitious and beautiful and full of life but she had her moments of despondency. Sometimes she would be gay and carefree one moment, and then in the depths of despair another. She was a good girl. She wrote often, at least once a week. It was only 10 days ago when she wrote me from San Diego telling me she had a job at the Naval Hospital there. I never dreamed she was having financial difficulties. Her letters were always so cheerful. This is not unique. Elizabeth will lie whenever it suits her. She is therefore an untrustworthy narrator. Beth never had a job in Los Angeles, nor an acting career. Her letters and conversations are filled with fibs and fantasies. Myth two. Robert Manley was the last person to see Elizabeth Short alive. No, her killer was the last person to see her, Red was the first significant suspect of the crime. 
but police within 24 hours realize Manley is innocent. Robert Manley is not the last person to see Elizabeth Short. He's the first person to be exonerated. Beth was seen multiple times over multiple days and nights between January 9th and 15th is something that I believe. Myth number three, Elizabeth Short was last seen at the Biltmore. No, not really. She's seen leaving the Biltmore, and that's a little different. Robert Manley leaves her home at 6.30, driving north. Beth uses the payphones in the lobby, and she waits. She makes more phone calls. Then she's seen exiting the Biltmore after 10 p.m. and walking south on Olive. What has been created by the mystery of these seven days reflects back to the myth of the ferryman and the river Styx. Beth is in motion. Her fate is sealed once she leaves the safe haven of the Biltmore and her final journey crossing the river to her Black Dahlia destination is what we're focusing on. The Biltmore really is not very important at all. Myth number four. The press invented the Black Dahlia name. Nope. She was named by regular customers at a drugstore counter in Long Beach who took notice of her black two-piece swimsuit. There's no evidence that these hangers-on know Elizabeth as a friend. Myth number five. Norton Avenue is a lover's lane. It's kind of an odd thing to bring up, really. I believed it in the beginning. Why would anyone make up that story? The body dump site is on Norton Avenue, and that's a very loud event in a quiet neighborhood. Within this residential postcards of uh, good neighborhoods where young families to buy their first home, a body is discarded in the weeds, dumped on an incomplete street, a desolated area that's under this umbrella of a safe part of town on the west side. There's no evidence that Elizabeth Short had any physical or emotional relationship to this residential location in Limerick Park. Beth's time in Los Angeles, her life is miles away from there, centered always in Long Beach, then in Hollywood and downtown Los Angeles. Today, the disposable victim is a movie trope. In 1947, there's no Law and Order episodes, <laughs> it's news that a tortured, mutilated body of a young woman would be found in a quiet, white, suburban part of town is horrifying. No victim found in the Skid Row section of the Los Angeles area would receive the same level of attention in the press. Every witness to the Norton Avenue location, as reported in the papers, is going there to dump rubbish or long cuttings because it's a vacant lot. Did someone sometime kiss someone else in a parked car on that darkly lit street? Well, maybe, probably. But then reporters are not interviewing local teenagers to find out where they neck. The press calls the Norton Avenue dump site a lover's lane to enhance the melodrama of the shocking event and does so with all the integrity of a real estate agent. In a later podcast, I will show examples of how newspapers use the term lover's lane only when they write about a desolate location within a good neighborhood. The point is, it's not necessary to label this vacant street a lover's lane because it's not news. Including it directs the narrative. 
Stories are crafted for maximizing curb appeal and will often use fictional tools to do so. One needs to separate newsworthy facts from newspaper stories. Let's consider the power of this language. Who wants to be an actress? Well, photogenic young girls. Who goes to a lover's lane? Passionate young sweethearts who seek privacy in the nooks and crannies of out-of-the-way places. Oh my, it's an attractive, talented, passionate young lover is murdered in cold blood. What a tragedy. The newspaper is assigning a fictional character arc to the victim, and that's how these Black Dahlia myths are created. In contrast, let's try a fact-driven story. Elizabeth Short drops her luggage off at the Greyhound bus station. She's lived in Los Santos one month earlier, but now she has no home to go to, no job to go to, no roommate to call, there's no lover. Beth is not meeting someone. Indeed, Elizabeth Short didn't tell anyone she'd be at the Biltmore Hotel. And she's not going to stay there. She doesn't have the money to pay for a room at the Biltmore. Beth makes calls from the hotel payphones, expecting to find a sympathetic ear. Apparently to no avail. Is she, as, is she, is she friendless as well? It certainly must have felt so as she walks late at night alone to a bar at the edge of Skid Row. Gee, it sounds like I'm describing the beginning of a film noir. A desperate, beautiful girl, penniless, walks down these streets alone and vulnerable. In the morning, her body is found dumped in an anonymous site, a victim of foul play. Elizabeth Short gets an actress and lover angle because her story is that the body is found on the west side. If a body is found in Skid Row, how could that victim ever be innocent? Because it begs the question, what is a good girl doing in the bad part of town after dark? Location, 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 true for real estate and equally true for newspaper headlines and newspaper column space. Consider who's buying the newspapers. It's the homeowners, not the homeless. A smaller headline and fewer columns and much less interest if the girl is killed near Skid Row. It probably is not a page one story. Would that article appear on page five or page 18? It's interesting to see the history, and we'll get into that a little later. I've been focusing my criticism on the newspapers, and certainly they do embellish the stories that they publish, but in comparison to the common books about the Black Dahlia that you see on the true crime shelves today, these newspapers of the day are a beacon of truth. Because the common agenda of these true crime books that we read today is that they're suspect-driven to the point of often being little more than a brief for the prosecution. These books weave assumptions and coincidences with facts to enhance the inevitable conclusion that Jack Anderson Wilson did it, or Bugsy Siegel, or Leslie Dillon, or George Knowlton, or George Hodel, or Orson Welles. To some degree, this is possible because, number one, Elizabeth Short is a cipher. There's a limit to what is knowable about her. And number two, so much of the testimony of those who know her is contradictory. So a writer can select the facts that builds this case against their chosen suspect. These flawed books are the reason I begin this podcast 
at the intersection of lies and myth. Now that we've dispelled some misconceptions, we can begin at the intersection of horror and mystery. Part of this mystery is the victim in that Beth is a young girl. She's a tabula rasa. And the other side of that coin is interesting too because you and I, dear listener, the Black Dahlia is a little bit of a Rorschach test for armchair detectives. The way you and I interpret these facts kind of reveals something about ourselves as well. Let's begin by quoting a man who never met Elizabeth Short but knew the Black Dahlia better than anyone, Detective Harry Hansen. He's interviewed in 1971 after he's retired. Quote, She didn't seem to have any goals or standards. She never had a job all the time she lived in Los Angeles. She had an obviously low IQ, lived hand-to-mouth, day-to-day. They found out during the autopsy that her teeth were filled with cavities. She filled them up with candle wax. She was a man-crazy tramp, but she wasn't a prostitute. You know, there are all kinds of men in her life. We were only able to find three who had any sexual experience with her. She was a tease. She gave a bad time to quite a few guys. She just asked for trouble. There wasn't much to like about her. Well, did I just mention Rorschach test a minute ago? Some of Hansen's frustration coming through, as well as perhaps a certain puritanical judgment of her character, but his negative comments can be traced to the very real choices Elizabeth Short made that created a high-risk environment for her to be a victim, getting into cars with strangers, picking up men on the street, chatting with who's ever on the next bar stool, not having a regular job, making a few dollars by having nude photos taken of her. There is little doubt that Hansen discovers other examples of behaviors or situations in the interviews with suspects and acquaintances, and we don't have access to those files. So his harshness may be based on things that we may never know. There are other murders during this time period, and as many as 10 other women are murdered and their bodies are dumped in the streets of Los Angeles in this age of film noir. And these unsolved cases are referred to as lone women murders. Does this mean there was a serial killer in Los Angeles in 1947? That's a good question. It's one of the mysteries of this case for me is that so much of the evidence would lead a person to believe that Elizabeth Short is the victim of a serial killer, and yet there are no other truly similar cases. I come to the Black Dahlia mystery as if I'm writing a book, so I'm going to make the assumption, listener, that you have significant interest in the Black Dahlia, you have familiarity with the topic, including uh, maybe even some knowledge of the lone women murders. I do have a Black Dahlia, Blue Dahlia webpage with maps and photos to help understand places and people, as well as the text of this podcast with the footnotes. So that concludes our prologue. Let us go now to January 15th, 1947, the discovery of the body. Limert Park is a newer suburban area of southwestern part of Los Angeles, and it becomes transformed this morning when the police are called to Norton Avenue. The time is 11.07 a.m. In response to a phone call from an anxious civilian, 
The University Division of the Los Angeles Police Department dispatches two patrolmen, Frank Perkins and Wayne Fitzgerald, to a vacant lot in a residential neighborhood, one block east of Crenshaw Boulevard, between Coliseum and 39th. Nothing could have prepared Perkins and Fitzgerald for what they would discover. The mutilated body of a young woman, washed of blood and bisected, the two halves placed a foot apart. Officer Fitzgerald later stated in an interview, well, the first thing we thought was it was a mannequin, that someone was playing a trick because there was no blood. Then we realized what the hell we had. We started calling all of our supervisors, telling them this was something big. Los Angeles Police Department detectives Harry Hansen and Finnis Brown are assigned to the case, and they arrive at the now-crowded dump site at 11.30. Los Angeles newspaper reporters listen to the police band in their car to stay on top of breaking news stories. And so when the police dispatch broadcast 39W, 415 Code 2, they hear intoxicated female, indecent exposure, no siren residential neighborhood. Well, that bodes well for every reporter listening on the police radio that's hoping for a front page story. A substantial number of reporters and photographers arrive at the Norton Avenue dump site before the lead detectives. What these reporters see a young girl has been tortured, anti-mortem and mutilated post-mortem. The body lays in the grass inches from the sidewalk on a vacant lot littered with weeds, trash, and brick-brack. There are no homes in this block of the subdivision. There's sidewalks and fire hydrants are in place, and that's all. This is a street of undeveloped lots, one empty lot next to the other on both sides of the street. The display of the place body invokes a quiet horror. Unlike anything most experienced reporters and police detectives have ever seen. The significant mutilation shock, yet they're framed unusually by the lack of blood which softens the scene. Inviting the eye to consider the victim to be an object, as if an alabaster statue fell from a pedestal and broke in half. People are queasy at the sight of blood. They faint. Your primary reaction is caution, emergency. Do I fight? Do I flee? Consider then that we know that the killer is not intimidated by the touch or smell or sight of blood. A comfort level with blood is, eliminates some suspects and is an indicator that narrows the field maybe to someone in a certain trade, a butcher, a mortician, a hunter. But due to the position of the bisection, that cut is so clean the police assume they're seeking someone with a high level of knife skills, likely medically trained. This lack of blood was confusing to the woman who had phoned the police earlier, Mrs. John Bersinger, who lived a block north of these empty lots, and she was walking south with her three-year-old daughter to a shoe repair shop in the shopping center to the south, Betty Bersinger did not see a dead woman. If she had, she would have said so to the police. In a recent book on the murder, the author introduces Betty Bersinger and then writes about how many flies are circling above the body. This conversation about flies is one perhaps the reporters will write about later. Betty does not hover and count flies. 
She's concerned about her child and the other children in the neighborhood and decides to phone the police because she is spooked, as if what she sees is a disturbing Halloween prank. She remembers, quote, I happened to glance over to my side and I saw this strange sight. It looked like a mannequin that had been cut in half and was separated and lying there. I didn't glance at it too long because I had my little girl with me. As I walked further, I thought, something didn't seem right to me. And I could see these kids with their bicycles and I thought, maybe it will scare these kids as they ride to school. I better call somebody so they could have a look and see what it is. The thought of a dead person did not enter my mind. I thought it was a mannequin because it was so white." End quote. Betty briskly walks south and knocks on the first home she comes to. There's no answer. At the second door, this time a housewife is at home. Betty uses the stranger's phone. The police don't ask for Betty's name. They ask for the phone number she's calling from, assuming she's calling from home. The university division officer who writes down that number then misplaces the slip of paper, so the police have no way to question the first witness. But that lack of blood at the crime scene is really the first mystery in the sense that it's confused Betty Bersinger and disoriented the policeman. And so why drain the body of all blood? It's not necessary to scrub the body before dumping it in a place where rubbish is discarded either. And so these are two of the several signatures, actions that are necessary for the killer, but not necessary for the killing. As we examine then this fallen statue in the Museum of Cold Cases, we have the advantage of time and we can bring the body of knowledge on the psychological makeup of killers to the investigation that we have today. In 1947, the level of damage to the victim is going to be cataloged by the police and the reporters as senseless evil. It's an unexplainable act of a violent madman. Certainly the reporters and policemen must have thought on that day, this is what it must have felt like to come upon a Jack the Ripper crime scene. The damage is dramatic, but it's the articulation to the wounds that signifies a commitment of time that's not seen in the Ripper alleyways. Jack the Ripper is a blitz attacker. He leaves the body where it falls. There's no sign of torture before death. He only wants to deal with the dead body. Elizabeth Short, on the other hand, has suffered. Her body is cut in half after her mouth is cleanly gashed on both sides. What do those actions mean? Today, we see this articulation as signature behavior that reveals character for the killer. But there's a certain amount of imagination that comes into play. The wide slicing of both sides of the mouth, for example. Is the killer thinking he's going to silence a big mouth, or is he opening a small mouth? Are the cuts related to the bondage? Is the slicing a thrust of sexual anger, or is this a joker smile? A visit to Wikipedia would tell you this cut is referred to as a Glasgow smile. It is not, in my opinion. A joker smile is not a Glasgow smile. This is a common error. It gets repeated on the internet as if it's a key that somehow unlocks the motive for everything. Aha! They're trying to teach everyone a lesson because 
Chelsea grin or a Glasgow smile is meant to be a gangland warning to not talk to the police. So that, quote, smile is a cut of the skin that's sliced on a curve up from the mouth toward the top of the ear, following the natural curve of the jawline. And it's so meant to be a warning, a scar for life, not a cause of death. So two things. If this is a warning, why do all those other things? Why kill her? Why carve the tattoo out of her leg? Is that a warning also? I'll teach you to have a tattoo. No, of course it isn't. The Glasgow smile is another myth. A marked victim who walks the streets in Glasgow and instills fear on the living. A scar is a daily reminder of the power of the local gang. There's no value to disfigure the dead. As far as a gang is concerned, the dead victim inspires hate, not fear. A dead victim creates a desire for revenge, not tribute. Elizabeth Short was sliced from the edge of her mouth straight back to the bottom of the earlobe as part of her torture. These two violent deep cuts happened while she was alive and they're one of the causes of her death. There are graphic autopsy photos that are all the more unsettling once one realizes the depth of suffering that this torturous slice would cause the victim. What ungodly screams must have been heard. These signatures, interestingly, have very popular culture references. So this unique attack on the body of Elizabeth Short, we, we can think, oh, a joker's smile. Draining of blood, that's a vampire. So these are common in our comic books and our movies, but what isn't common is them appearing in an actual police report. Cutting a woman in half, of course, is a magic trick that stretches back even further before the 1940 Batman issue or the 1928 movie called The Man Who Laughs. A professional magician is cutting a woman half on stage as a vaudeville trick going back to 1921. If we see a man in a top hat and a tuxedo with a saw in a casino in Nevada, well, it's showtime. As common as this might be in our imagination and uncommon in reality, bisecting a body is exceedingly rare. Indeed, beyond the difficulty of the task, there are very few benefits to cut a body in half. So perhaps this is for the killer. Showtime. The victim is already dead. Now the goal of dismemberment is hiding the identity of the victim through dispersal of the parts, as we know from the butcher of Kingsbury Road in Cleveland. It's going to be accompanied by hiding parts of the victim in different places. Bisecting the body has no comparative benefit. The face, the teeth, the fingerprints are all intact and establish the identity of the victim. If Dr. Watson were writing about the Black Dahlia story, he would call it the case of the bisected beauty because cutting a woman in half is a commitment of time, requiring skills with the right tools in uninterrupted space. And as the reporters and police stood over the body, it's clear this visual horror is far more than overkill. Washing the dead body, that's an uncommon signature as well. Whose sins are being washed away? Is the body being prepared for display in the manner of a mortician? And this to me is the Sherlock Holmes moment by comparison because the lack of the blood on the body is an underappreciated clue on its own. 
If you're going to bisect the body over a bathtub, well, a substantial loss of the blood goes down the drain. But this killer didn't just rinse the body. He obsessively deep-scrubbed the dead, naked victim with a brush, showing a very uncommon behavior, as if he's dealing with an object, not a person. Why would you scrub a body to throw it in the dirt on Norton Avenue? Hmm? It leads us to our initial conclusion that this is a crime about torture and display. Such a thought does not occur in the investigation in 1947 because police in this period assume the killer knows the victim. They assess the damage to the body as a representation of the depth of anger that the killer has. And they're quick to arrest the husband in this type of rage killing. Today our understanding of the sexual aspect of this type of lust killing is about control through torture. The killer codifies and purposes his rage through the slow suffering of a stranger as he watches. In a rage killing, the husband, the jilted lover, understand that there's an enormous benefit to hide the body because unless the police have a body, there's no crime. So the rage killer would wish to pretend the victim is alive. Oh, she left town. She went to see her sister. Why would you display her dead body when there is such a risk? The public dump site makes it much more likely Elizabeth Short was killed by someone that she does not know. Staying with this topic of bisecting the body, FBI mindhunter John Douglas in his book The Cases That Haunt Us suggests this was done to move Elizabeth's body more easily and I'm going to disagree with John Douglas this one time. Beth is five foot five. She weighs 118 pounds. That's not heavy. 117 pounds is the classic weight of a fashion runway model. Douglas postulates that our killer is weakened or injured, so cutting her in half makes sense. Well, Mr. Douglas is very aware that serial killers select smaller victims because they're easier to control. They're less likely to fight back. It doesn't make sense to me that the killer of Elizabeth Short is somehow strong enough to overpower her, but so weak that he has to cut her in half. Because it's physical work to bisect a body. The estimated time is an hour and a half. So obviously it'd be more than that if our killer was weak or significantly injured. And it's a mental task as well. Uh, it's a significant commitment that requires a time allocated to that task of bisecting, preparing the space, and then cleaning up afterwards. The fact is that bisecting is totally unnecessary to move the body. You could chop the body with an axe, and you don't need one iota of medical skill to chop wood. Okay, it's sloppy, it's messy, and it's quick, but it's over. It's noteworthy, then, that all of these signature behaviors, the slashing of both sides of the mouth, the bisecting the body, the scrubbing, the washing, these are not common signatures. In combination with the amount of time spent with the body before and after the murder, the signatures of the killer really has us wonder who would do this almost more than who is this dead body. But neither answer is forthcoming. There are no witnesses. There's no clothing nearby. There's no identification, there's no shoes, there's no purse, there's very little for the police to go on. And witnesses and confessions are the cornerstones of successful police investigations at the time. 
Detective Lieutenant Jesse Haskins described the condition of the body when he first arrived on the scene. The body was lying face up and the severed part was jogged over about 10 inches. There was a tire track right up against the curbing. There is what appeared to be a possible bloody heel print in this tire mark. On the curbing, which is very low, there was one spot of blood. There was an empty paper cement sack lying in the driveway and it had a spot of blood on it. It had been brought from another location. The body was clean and appeared to have been washed. So, a man's shoe print near the sidewalk, a drop of watery blood on a torn cement bag. How much of a clue do you think a cement bag is? Well, let's make that the question of the day. The question of the Black Dahlia, Blue Dahlia quiz. Everyone listening can play the quiz. If you're in your apartment or your car or your hotel room listening right now, raise your hand if you have an empty cement bag with you, right? No. Cement bag seems to indicate a man who owns a home or is in the construction business. Killers and cement. Construction at the home. There are no prints on the bag, so if the killer left the bag, it's interesting he didn't see it as a clue. The killer could have just as easily picked it up and driven away. Certainly one supposes the killer is wearing gloves and isn't worried about prints on the bag. As for the mystery of the victim, no one matching the age and description of the girl has been reported. So no one knows who is missing. This is the first unknown murder victim of 1947, so the initial police reports are gathered together under file Jane Doe number one. One more thing before I go. As I mentioned, there will be a web page. It's going to have the text of the podcast with footnotes. I've chosen not to interrupt the flow of the podcast to talk about sources. For example, I spoke about the effective side of blood on many people. Well, on the webpage, there'll be a footnote sourcing Psychology Today, September uh, 2013. It's fascinating for me to learn that 25% of the population, uh, the side of blood is going to cause dizziness or fainting. More than I would have thought. I quoted an interview of Wayne Fitzgerald. I did not interview the policeman. I read about it in the Los Angeles Times in 1997 in an article called A Crime Steeped in Mystery, Myth, written by Larry Harnish, who's a very much respected fact checker on the Black Dahlia investigations. In contrast to these Black Dahlia true crime book writers that I was talking about. So take a look at the webpage. I would enjoy hearing from you. I welcome your comments and emails. This concludes the first podcast of the Black Dahlia and the Blue Dahlia. The next episode will focus on the following day, January 16th, and I'll be telling the tale of one autopsy and two very different headlines. Until then.